Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years, have a plan and know the game. Be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble. Set a budget and never gamble with money you can't afford to lose. Take a break and consider teaming up with trusted friends to help you stick to your budget. Remember, if you or a loved one has a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER 24-7 or go to HelpMyGamblingProblem.org for free confidential services. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. What's up, Open Floor Globe? I'm your host, Michael the Pod Pina, and I'm joined on the other line by my good friend, Sports Illustrated senior writer Chris Herring, because Rohan Nodkerny lost track of time binging Love Island and will sadly have to hop on later this week instead. Uh, Chris, how are you doing today, my friend? Good. Excited to start a new week and uh, excited to have Game 5 with us pretty soon. No reaction to Rohan just... Really not taking care of his responsibilities with the reality television binge that I, I referenced at the top, Chris? Hey, man. Rohan <laughs> watching reality TV uh, and getting into my Monday, meaning that I got to record on Monday, means that I get my Friday. So we're, we're all good. L- okay, long I weekend you. for your boy. Very fair. Very potentially. fair. Potentially. Very fair. <laughs> <laughs> On today's show, you and I will be analyzing the finals, of course. We'll take a look back to Game 4. We will look ahead to tonight's Game 5, a pivotal game, the most important basketball game of the entire season. But first, a quick reminder to please keep your emails coming, openfloormail at gmail.com. That's openfloormail at gmail.com. Okay, so Chris, let's jump in from the start with a quick conversation about Game 4. Uh, the Golden State Warriors won that contest, 107 to 97 inside Boston Garden. Steph Curry was amazing. We are going to talk a lot about Steph Curry today. Boston's offense was uh, very bad in that game, particularly down the stretch in the fourth quarter. Very stagnant offense. 
Um, just, you know, big picture view, what was your reaction watching that game? And is there a play or sequence that kind of stands out to you three days later? There are obviously so many important possessions, but do, does, do any one or two kind of stick in your brain when you think about those 48 minutes? There, you know, I went back and watched the game a second time this morning and really, I don't think there was one play. There's maybe one play that I thought was interesting that I doubt a lot of people even remember where Steph grabs an offensive rebound, I think, in between. Was it Smart and Tatum at one point and then just kind of went back up with it, which I was like, how often do you see that where Steph is grabbing, you know, offensive Ten rebounds getting put back. Steph Curry. <laughs> Super impressive, you know, just like you can't let him hurt you, of all people, off a putback with everything else he's doing. Um, and so just a lapse for the the Celtics and just a really heads up play and, you know, him being in the right place at the right time. But really, I thought, you know, aside from that, which was just kind of weird to watch and, and you know, impressive to mm-hmm. see. Um, I just kept thinking about the, it was like the same iteration of the same play every time. There wasn't really one. I mean, you had the crazy one where Steph wanted the four point play where Tatum bumps into him. You had another one where Derek White at one point kind of has his hand extended to contest Steph. And after Steph makes a ridiculous shot where he has no space, uh, Derek White just kind of, it was almost like one of those plays like from, you know, that frame from the office where they just look directly into the camera where it looked like Derek White was doing that, where he's like, (laughs) what the hell else am I supposed to do? Um, But it was repeatedly Steph kind of having single coverage basically and Mm -hmm. toasting somebody either with the three or when Robert Williams came up as high as he possibly could to take away his airspace, Steph saying, okay, well, I'm, you know, more nimble than you and I can just dribble a few feet into the, the arc and, and hit a jump shot, uh, you know, mid range jump shot or a floater, which he did once or twice. So it, it was just the, the inability to stop that whenever it happened and pretty much everything they tried just going awry. The guy was on fire the whole night. And so it wasn't really one player, one sequence. It was just, uh, you know, there have been a couple Groundhog Day moments in this series every time we have a third quarter, obviously, but also Steph getting these looks and, and really making them count essentially every single time. And that's uh, it, it's crazy to see it at this high of a level in the finals, but uh, that's just how good he's been. So uh, Steph played nine minutes in the fourth quarter of game four. Do you want to guess what Golden State's offensive rating was when he was on the court in that period? Uh, one. Chris, do you enjoy? 30? Do you enjoy my my spontaneous? No, because I don't like feeling unprepared. I hate it actually. Uh, one thirty five. I'm gonna go slightly high, but it's probably too low. Uh, one forty three point eight. I said one thirty five would be a record by like seventeen or eighteen points, and it's too low. That's insane. Mm-hmm. That's insane. And- man. Boston's offensive rating in the fourth quarter was 86.4. And after the game and during the practice day, Ime Odoka said, and we'll we'll talk about Steph throughout the episode, I'm sure, but Ime Odoka said that, uh, and reiterated when asked about the defensive coverage on Curry, that if Boston executed offensively, they would have won the game and the series would be at least 3-1, I think was Ime's quote. That was what he said. Um, so the one play that I had, so funny that, uh, you bring up 
all of the you know the the up to touch pick and roll coverages that the Celtics had on Steph when he hit just insane shot after insane shot really difficult stuff he got loose a couple times um off the ball but it was mostly those pull-ups which he's shooting 50 he's 20 for 40 on pull-up threes in this series it which is like i think we talked about it in uh our last episode it was like it's basically just if steph can hit insane shots golden state has a chance and he comes out and it's just one insane shot after the next in game four. Um, I had a really, I was at the game. I had a really interesting angle um, for a bunch of Steph's threes, particularly the ones in the first half. And there was one when the Warriors were shooting on um, kind of the side where the media sits. And there was one shot where, Derek White trailed over the screen and he had like the best rear contest you can possibly have on a shooter without fouling. Like his hand must have like grazed Curry's hair and Curry drilled it. And it was exactly what you were talking about. It was like, this is <laughs> it's like, you can't do anything better than that. Um, but the one play that really sticks out to me, ironically, is the one with about a minute to go. When Draymond, Clay misses a three, um, the Warriors are up three. Clay misses a three. Draymond grabs the offensive rebound. He kicks it back out to Steph. Derek White is on Steph. Tatum is on Green. Green goes to set a ball screen for Curry. And the Celtics blitz it. I think it was the first time in the game that they blitz Steph. Steph throws it over the top to Draymond. Draymond has a four on three. Patented. That's like their gravy, Golden State Warriors gravy. He hits Kevon Looney on a dump off right under the rim for a layup and the Warriors go up five. And that play really sticks out to me because for all of their issues offensively that Boston had, like you really can't, and maybe they were intentionally, let's say I, I have a really hard time believing that that was what was supposed to happen on that possession. Normally they would switch it, put White on Draymond and Tatum on Curry and with the clock winding down, have to have make Curry go against Tatum one on one and get a bucket or make a play, and for the the Celtics to kind of break down like that defensively, I thought was most telling on what is I mean up until this point that was their most important probably their most important defensive possession of their entire season. So that that stuck out to me. Do you know what play I'm I'm talking about? Oh, completely. First, I mean, it was yeah. it was interesting because. Uh, for all the talk of Draymond and, you know, him being pulled and Kerr putting him back in, you start to see, and, and this is the sort of thing that you start to talk about Draymond's importance within Golden State's universe. It's easy enough to look at him and say, he's not producing, he's not good, he's this, he's that. But he also, like, that's Golden State's offense at its healthiest, what you just described. Is exactly. being able to get for like creating disadvantages for the defense where they're having to try to guard four people with three defenders that you want that that, that obviously the the disadvantage for Golden State is that Draymond has not made really anything in this series. The one shot he made in this game was an uncontested putback dunk, I, I believe, uh, or whatever it was. You know, so he was over six aside from that shot. So he hasn't been able to score when he's had a four on three advantage, but 
they haven't really been seeing a lot of those uh, because Draymond hasn't even been looking at the basket a lot of the time in this series. So that giving that up, that's why you were saying because of the sort of scenario it came in off of an offensive rebound, the defense mm-hmm. is scrambling around already because of that. It makes you think that Boston kind of just wasn't prepared for it um, because it was a weird scramble sort of situation. But yeah, that that explains why Kerr wanted Draymond in the game. He, he's he can grab an offensive rebound. He's still a good passer. Um, you know, he's going to make mistakes from time to time. But you trust him in that situation about as much as anybody outside of Steph um, to at least make the right read, make the right play if it's there. And so uh, that play was huge. And and you know, there are a couple of plays down the stretch that Draymond made that were were pretty important. Um, and you know, do indicate that Kerr had enough faith to go back to him in some situations, even after pulling him, um, which I think was was really, really important here. Yeah, I feel like, honestly, if you look at Draymond's stat line from game four, like, it was kind of just like a quintessential Draymond game in a good way. And I understand that he was passing up open looks around the basket, which is not what you want to see. But five offensive rebounds, eight assists, four steals, um, two points, not great. Only three fouls, only two turnovers. Um, I know he was benched in the fourth, and he was pretty upset about it. And I was kind of waiting to see, with bated breath, (laughs) when or if Kerr would bench Draymond in the series. And we saw it. We're going to talk about this later, but we saw we it. We talked about it in the last quarter. pod that you were basically saying, and I remember I was like, you wouldn't have Draymond in your, you know, in your ideal lineup. And you're like, I mean, it's either him or Looney. And uh, I mean, so clearly Kerr was up against the fence with that same question. He used mm-hmm. both of them at times towards the end there. He went long stretches with just one. And uh, I think that that kind of, maybe it was a turning point in the series. Uh, maybe it lights a fire under Draymond to, be more aggressive. Certainly is going to be playing back at home now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, outside of an environment where people are telling him to F off the whole game. Uh, <laughs> so maybe that helps, you know, maybe. Um, but also, like, if if he just can put down a, a layup or two, you know, it's not that the guy needs to be scoring 15 a game. It's like, can he give you eight? Can he make three baskets um, instead of one, instead of nothing? That, that That is a big difference. And even just those few points – any pressure that you can take off of Steph and put on to Boston to have to care about you defensively, uh, that's really important in a series where nobody else has been a consistent, consistent score. We've talked about Poole and and basically like his 12 points a game throughout the series or whatever it's been. Clay has, has been a little bit better, obviously. Uh, you know, game three was good for him. Uh, but, you know, it would still do wonders for golden state if draymond could give them like seven eight points uh on a given night and particularly going home for a game five where this series is going to shift one way or the other uh would be massive for them you're right it wasn't uh, it was not by no means was it like a, a bad draymond game um because he did so much other stuff in key moments but uh the scoring would just i mean at that point you're talking about all-star level draymond if he could give you even eight or nine points and that's uh, that's something that they could just, you know, that they win the series, frankly, if they get that sort of production out of him with the way Steph is playing and with the way Steph is having to be defended. I'm looking at this now. Draymond's usage is lower than Kavon Looney's in this series. 
Isn't that that's kind of wild? I did not anticipate that statistic. And I'm I'm yeah. throwing that at you on the fly. That's pretty wild. No, but we um, but we've talked about this a little bit though. That like absolutely. wasn't it? It was game one, right? That he he took twelve shots. And I was like, that's a a huge yeah. win for Boston, particularly if you're only making two of them. But if Draymond's not shooting at all, it's it's a win for them in some ways too. Because then you it's one less guy you even have to worry. You don't have to worry about him. So it's it's there's a sweet spot there, and that's what I'm saying. Is like I think. There's extremes with everything in the playoffs because you you only have so many shots until you're like, okay, we got to do away with this guy. We got to put him on the bench, this, that. We can only lose one more game here before we're desperate and we can't play this guy at all. Um, his ideal is probably somewhere around the number of shots he took, but you can't shy away from them if the, if the other team is not defending you. Like you have to take some shots if you're going to be a primary ball handler on this team like Draymond is at times. Uh, and so, you know, the end of the game, the situation presented itself with that offensive board where he was that, um, and he did attack on some level. So we'll see. It'll, it'll be really interesting. Like to me, he's, he's the key guy for golden state that I think when you talk about him having to get it going, it's not necessarily him scoring a lot. It's just him being more aggressive than he's been and not being afraid, quite frankly, which, uh, we talk about Draymond green. You don't normally think about fear, but mm-hmm. there is some of the Ben Simmons stuff with him, and we've seen it before. We saw it last uh, last year too, I think, in, in their playing game situation. I remember uh, against Memphis, I think. So we we've seen it. He just has to kind of break out of it somehow, and just even if you're missing a couple of them, you got to shoot them. You got to go after it. Yeah, absolutely. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. <laughs> 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years, have a plan and know the game. Be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble. Set a budget and never gamble with money you can't afford to lose. Take a break and consider teaming up with trusted friends to help you stick to your budget. Remember, if you or a loved one has a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER 24-7 or go to helpmygamblingproblem.org for free confidential services. Um, I'm curious, Chris, while watching this game, were you surprised that Golden State won given... I guess like Boston, particularly in the fourth quarter, and there's a narrative coming out of that game that Boston kind of let one slip that they could have had. And they kept mounting these five, six point leads and couldn't build on them at all, particularly late in the game, even though their offense wasn't great. And then they stopped hitting shots and they were sped up a little bit. But even with Steph playing as well as he did, like, were you anticipating a Golden State victory? Were you just like watching in the moment? Were you like, were the Celtics just like, what, what, what was going through your head, I guess, in the fourth quarter? Like, did you believe that Golden State would win or did you think that the Celtics kind of were in a position to go up 3-1 and kind of take a firm command oh, yeah. of the series? No, there's no question. So I'm, I'm, I remember marking this down in light of our, 
um, the outline you gave me, did it feel like there was a moment where that was like definitive that it was going to happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I feel like particularly uh, Jalen Brown had that ridiculous scoop layup and transition um, at yes. one point about midway through the fourth. That the, was like, the moment where I circled one, it. Yeah. yeah and one that wasn't an and one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was the, the crowd was euphoric uh they were i think that put them up by four if i remember i think it was 90 86 they got a free throw from smart that put them up 91 86 uh so they were up five with seven minutes to go the crowd was as into it as they'd been all night Uh, i'm looking at a website called unpredictable which is um you know it deals with some analytics and some live win probability stuff deals with uh all sorts of kind of cool stuff as it relates to high leverage situations and the most important play of a game, the the least valuable player of a game, most valuable player, whatever. Um, it had them at about 83% um, with Boston up five, uh, 83% win probability, I should clarify, with about seven minutes to go. Um, and then not even just that, but even once Golden State closed it a little bit, um, there was that big three that Marcus Smart hit too. Um that's the one I got up, here. I think, yeah, like it. It, it wasn't, you know, uh, it's weird in hindsight to say that like a four point lead over Golden State at any point, even if there's ten seconds left in the game, like a four point lead doesn't feel safe against a team like Golden State. But you know, there were only a couple minutes left in the game, and there was just something about it that just I think the smart three came off an offensive rebound, um, and just kind of like there was something about it that just kind of felt like this might be it, um, and clearly it wasn't, and. I think one person we have to talk about as we talk about Looney and uh, Draymond and their offensive rebounds, Wiggins, man, and talking about the sorts of contributions you could have without scoring. Wiggins scored. It's not as if he wasn't scoring in that game, but 16 rebounds in that mm-hmm. game and a couple huge. of massive, massive offensive boards that just were were huge, including uh, one that he had a put back on. Um, you know, Clay had a couple of really big baskets down the stretch as well. One that he created for himself where it looked like he was going to go to the basket and then kind of did this awkward reverse pirouette, uh, fade away. And obviously a huge, huge three where again, Steph dictating everything. Um, the Celtics two best players come out and guard him and are basically standing in front of him and Tatum and Brown. Steph sees it and immediately just swings the ball to Clay who's standing there open at the top of the key to, to knock in a three that I think gave them the lead. Um, and I think that was the, you know, I think that yep. was basically the end of, not the end of the game, but uh, Golden State didn't relinquish the lead after that. So that meant at 95-94. So, I mean, it was, it, there were moments where it certainly felt like uh, the Celtics had the game and um, Steph just kind of did what he was doing and taking advantage of the, the one-on-ones that he had. And when he had situations where it was one-on-two, he swung the ball. And, um, you know, he, so everything was, was dictated by him, but Wiggins had a huge role in it as well. All the offensive rebounds ultimately killed, uh, Boston towards the end. I think they had five more in the game than, uh, than Boston did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wrote about Wiggins after the game, his performance stood out for obvious reasons. And I thought that he was going to be a barometer for the Warriors coming into this series because he can create his own shot. He's their second best defender who plays regular minutes and in this matchup he's probably you can argue their best defender i don't think that i could you could make the argument he's their most indispensable defender uh really their only two-way wing (laughs) on the team like um 
when he was on the court, they were plus 20. When he sat for like four minutes, they were minus 10. I didn't think that was a coincidence at all. And I think mm. Jeff Van Gundy was on the broadcast being like, you need to, when Wiggins sat, he was like, yeah, you got to get Wiggins back in this game immediately. And I totally agree with that. He was huge. Um, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the Mark. The Marcus Smart three felt like one of those, like, uh, just like a destiny shot. Like, yeah, had no business going in. Put them up four with like I don't even know five minutes to go. It or didn't something look like, like that. a comfortable shot. Was part of why it felt like one of those destiny ones where it was like he kind of shot it a, a, maybe a split second earlier than I thought. It looked like he was unsure about whether he had the amount of space he wanted to take the shot. Um, so it went in. I mean, again, the crowd was just going nuts because this is really an opportunity to put the series away. Really is kind of what that felt like. Uh, that game, if they win it. Mm-hmm. Oh, the series would have been over. Yeah. And I have not thought like that was my the when that shot went in, that was the first time in the whole postseason run where I was like, um, okay, the Celtics are gonna win the championship. Like I thought that they should win the championship, but after that shot went in, I was like, okay, they should coast down the stretch here. That was an absolutely insane make by Marcus Smart. I do feel like it wasn't like I feel like that loss Game four's loss wasn't quite as big of a gut punch for the Celtics as game five of the second round when Bobby Portis had the putback and then they go down 3-2. Mm, yeah. I, I also think that Jimmy Butler's game six, 47 points in the garden, when everyone for days is saying that the Miami Heat are kind of dead and buried, that loss... Most teams could not come back, I feel, like from a game four loss like Boston had in the in these finals, given that the lead and how close they were. It's just like so tantalizing against a team like the Warriors that you can't give so many opportunities to. But what makes this Celtics team so fascinating is their resiliency and it's just it this series is just it's it's shaping up to be a classic and I really hope it goes seven. It's it's incredible stuff. Um one of the reasons why it's a classic is Steph Curry, who finished with 43 points, 7 for 14 behind the three-point line. My question to you is, Is this the was this the best game of Steph's career, in your opinion? Pro- probably. Uh, and, you know, my response would be, if, if it wasn't, then it's extremely, extremely close. I mean, the first thing I think most people are at least going to look at, if they can't remember from memory is, you know, like how many times has he scored more than this? And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of them was before he was even in his title run. Um, I think it was 2013 against uh, the Spurs and I think the semifinal round, if I remember correctly, in the Western semis. Um, so when you're looking at the title era that they've had in Golden State, he's only had one game where there was more than this, more scoring than this. And... I think there's an argument to be made. Now, the ending was very different. The game was not um, single digits by the end. Um, and they held him down at the very end because probably for a couple of reasons. One, I'm sure dude was tired. Um, mm-hmm. But two, he was playing without Clay and, and KD who were hurt at that point. So, you know, it, it's like having to weigh it, the two things against that. Did you, do you value the performance where he has literally no one else? Um and is just doing what he can. And keep in mind, that was a series where uh, Nick Nurse was throwing literally everything he could. And Steph had already thrown a box in one 
at the guy earlier in the series. And then it was open season to do stuff like that when you were playing without Clay and without a without Kevin Durant, who was hurt. So, um, you know, it, it, the interesting thing about that game, I think, is that, I, again, and you and I have had this conversation before where I think we both compared this Boston defense and we're raising the question about um, whether th- this was the best defense that Giannis had played um, and having to play Boston. And I think both of us said it might be, but Toronto was really damn good too. Even guys on that team that we didn't necessarily think of as like elite defenders have since kind of become players that we at least include in that conversation, like a Fred Van Vliet. Um, and lo and behold, you know, Fred Van Vliet started to get that reputation after the way he defended Steph. So uh, this was really impressive. I mean, the point total 47, 43 with the stakes being this high. And again, this being a win, him coming through big in the fourth quarter versus not having done that in the game against uh and, and the game against Toronto, I think you could say that this was, uh, like I said, if not, then it, it was very, very close. But I think you could make the argument very clearly that it might have been. It's hard for me to say it wasn't the best. Like, the Raptors game, very impressive, obviously. One thing I look at is, like, he was 31 in that Raptors game. He's that 34 too. now. Like, Banged up in this game, too, a little bit. Coming off the the weird foot thing, exactly. Um, stakes down two one on the road could go down three one. Um, the opponent, like I, all due respect to that Raptors defense, I give a slight edge to the Celtics defense. Um, the slightest of edges. Uh, the environment, the fact that it's the finals. Uh, I think he's surrounded by less offensive talent than he's ever had right now. Um, And the way he's being guarded is kind of reflecting that reality. Uh, Just like, even when he's like, he hit this floater over like from the right elbow in the fourth quarter. It was just like, yeah, (laughs) <laughs> he made it's one of the hardest shots in the game, and he Looked made easy. it look so easy. Um, yeah. So I, I think it was the best, and I was like so lucky enough to to sit there and watch it in person, and uh, to see his emotion also was very telling from the jump when the first when the first uh, I think it was after the first TV timeout heading into it, he hit this just ridiculous. Pull up three over Al Horford. Actually, it was over Jalen Brown, but they had Al Horford in the coverage. And <laughs> it was like, hits this shot. It's like pro- probably a 32 footer. And then just walks towards the Celtics crowd and it starts barking at them. And from where I was sitting, it felt like he was kind of barking at, like, not us too, but like, he was in the general vicinity and I was getting intimidated and I'm not even playing in the basketball game. And it's <laughs> <laughs> just, he's terrifying. Um, which kind of brings me to my next question, Chris, where do you rank Steph Curry on the list of just the greatest players you've seen live in your lifetime? That could be on TV. That could be in person, but since okay. you've been on this earth, where does he rank? In terms of, I mean, historically is a totally different conversation, and we're gonna probably revisit that. I would say in the off season, 
Um, Maybe in a, the next week or so. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Uh, but just since you've all the players you've been able to see and witness, just wh- where does he rank? And I know it's really yeah. it's hard to kind of not stay in the moment with a, a game like this. And I probably am a victim of it. But for you, what's the answer to that question? Yeah. Well, thank you for clarifying kind of the, the question a little bit because my, my first thing on my list here was like, ask Michael, when does my lifetime start? <laughs> Which feels like more a question for my mom and dad uh, or just my birth certificate. Um, but, you know, if you're saying as a cognizant watcher of the game and of the sport, which for me, even though I'm from Chicago and I'm, I'm 35, like Michael Jordan was really the very beginning of that, but I didn't even catch the majority of his career is like someone that could absorb what he was doing. I think both of us might've been a little bit too young to have done that. So, you know, still assuming that, you know, people are not pulling my leg. I saw how dominant he was when I watched him. And that was, you know, the last two years of his time with the bulls really. Um, I would honestly say that Steph is probably fourth, which feels kind of unfair to say that Uh, fourth, maybe even fifth. Um, Michael, I would say uh, has to be, number one or at least very close to that lebron i feel like uh, is understandably going to be either one or two so those two i think are kind of shoe-ins the guy that i have in front of him that i think it's fair to have him in front for now is tim duncan uh now i did not see necessarily as much of his prime by the time i started covering the league but the guy was still clearly a, a huge difference maker even towards the back end of his career uh you know, and and maybe the type of play that he had, the style of play that he had was one that wasn't as hindered by the idea of being older. But, you know, like it's pretty rare that we're able to look at bigs and be able to say that, that they can really hold their own. Um, you know, so mm-hmm. I, I would put him there at number three. I think also just the fact that, you know, we talk about Steph and, you know, even Howard uh, Beck and, and other people have taken – full notice of or have written about the impact that he has aside from just Steph's shooting. Um, and Steph is a better defender than he gets credit for. And we've seen it even in moments in the series. He's also never going to be confused with being like an elite defender the way that Tim Duncan was. So I don't think that you can look at the, the beautiful kind of two-way balance that Tim Duncan had for so long and say that Steph deserves to be over him right now. Uh, maybe over time, I might even have a hard time with that, but maybe over time. But I would say Duncan's two-way stuff, I would put him over Steph. Where I have Steph is like, okay, him or Shaq. And maybe I'd give a slight edge to to Curry. Shaq was not a dominant defensive player. Um, mm-hmm. Shaq was someone that was dominant kind of in the inverse way to Steph. So I think it's an interesting conversation to be had there. Um, sure. But, you know. So I, I would probably put Steph somewhere fourth or fifth. I'm not sure. I haven't given it a whole lot of thought, but that that's where I would have him. I would have him after those first three, certainly. MJ, LeBron, and Tim Duncan. So I have MJ, LeBron, for sure. Those are two in front of it. And then Duncan is fascinating. And I think when Curry retires, there are going to be so many parallels with Steph and Tim Duncan like mm. as figures, the leadership. the leadership, like all-time teammates, their personas that aren't like very, you know, rah-rah. You, they don't wear their emotions on their sleeve typically when they're playing. 
they're just so steady. They're so. I mean, Steve, they're, they're, the Steve Kerr connection. Uh, Kerr has compared the two many times. For me, I this is me being caught in the moment. I'm I'm giving I'm putting step three for me. Oh wow! Okay, slightly ahead of Tim Duncan. I'm glad that you mentioned Tim Duncan and did not overlook him because he's one of the ten greatest players who ever lived. Um, but. And I'll probably waffle back on this in a week if Steph has like two duds <laughs> for the rest of the series. It, it helps that he hasn't had one yet in the series, which exactly. I will say this. It's a little bit early. You know, actually, I'll leave it alone because let me stick with your outline. Go ahead. Keep going. Okay. Okay. So I guess the other players who popped into my head after, and not just popped into my head, like after looking it up, like mm-hmm. I would put Steph ahead of Hakeem Olajuwon. I would put Steph ahead of Kobe Bryant. Um, that's going to probably make people upset, but I don't think it's particularly close to me. Um, I put him ahead of Shaq. Kevin Durant is one name we haven't mentioned. And he was on my list too. Yeah, I'm, it's very close. I I'm going Steph over KD. Uh, there's just something about the ability to cross half court and instantly the other team is in danger that none of these other players can replicate. And he's just, he's so unique and so like powerful in his own way, dominant in his own way, which was the whole thesis of Howard's wonderful story about him coming into the series. Um, Also, there's something to be said too, if Steph ends up having as many titles without KD as KD has with Steph, like, it's just no. I know that rings are not everything, but it just gets a little bit difficult to say that Katie was a greater player all time when he played with them. I think benefited from playing with Steph, uh, and and obviously Steph benefited from playing with him too. So I'm not trying to. It's not all or nothing, but I just kind of feel like man, like that is a form of greatness too to be able to be the spearhead of two teams that win a championship. So if he gets this one, this would give him four. Two that came with KD, two that didn't. Um, but you're talking about at that point, how many years would that have been? It would have been seven years between titles that he won without KD. The last one they won without KD 2015 was 2015. That's yeah. pretty impressive, man. Like that also speaks to the longevity that you were talking about, like the difference between Steph's career high in the playoffs at 31 versus now is is fundamentally different so i look man you're not gonna have to shout me down or argue with me to 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 say that steph you know as of right now you know is kind of higher up on that list than uh, the katie maybe like you said maybe we're prisoners in the moment but it just this feels different and uh i mean i'm still stunned by a lot of things in this series but the idea that as tatum struggles as brown has moments where maybe he's not um sure of where he's going with the ball or whatever. Maybe he struggles a little bit for a quarter or two. Like Steph really hasn't had that. Uh, maybe, you know, a quarter where he doesn't play well, but uh, the numbers speak for themselves. And, and I mean, the eye test is even more affirming, I think, than the numbers most of the time. Yeah, and there's also, just in the particular Durant versus Curry conversation, there's the fact that Kevin Durant's team also played against the Boston Celtics and were swept and 
Kevin Durant struggled mightily in that series. And, you know, a lot of reasons for the Nets being totally dysfunctional. I'm not blaming Kevin Durant for that. But on a pure talent basis, like, he had Kyrie Irving as a teammate. Um I'm trying to. I can't even remember who's on the who's in that net series. To be honest, now that I'm thinking back on it, feels like it was 25 years ago. Yeah, Bruce. I guess Bruce Brown was like the third best player, so that kind of uh, invalidates <laughs> my argument. Um, but yeah, it was just it's fascinating to see the Curry have this level of success against a defense like this. He's like breaking a defense that it didn't it didn't like dominate Durant. It didn't dominate Giannis or Jimmy Butler, but. It dictated a lot of what they wanted to do, and it made their life really difficult from a physical perspective. And they can't really do that with Steph, or haven't been able to so far, because of the shooting. So I just think he's such a special player, and he ranks so high in my estimation right now. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge, Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years, have a plan and know the game. Be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble. Set a budget and never gamble with money you can't afford to lose. Take a break and consider teaming up with trusted friends to help you stick to your budget. Remember, if you or a loved one has a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER 24-7 or go to helpmygamblingproblem.org for free confidential services. So I want to ask you a question, one last question about Game 4, and then we'll look ahead to to tonight's Game 5. Um... Draymond Green obviously gets benched with about eight minutes to go in the fourth quarter. We mentioned that already. I never thought it would actually happen because of who Draymond is and what he's meant to the Golden State Warriors throughout this entire run. Do you think, like, what do you think would have happened if the Warriors lost that game? Kerr benches Draymond. I know he brings him back for the offense-defense substitutions with Jordan Poole with about three minutes to go, but... If they lost that game, what like what is the fallout for the Warriors? Like I, I, it could could have been like could it have gotten to like a we have to trade Draymond level if they lost the series then in five? Like I don't I don't know. It would have been could have been catastrophic. Am I am I being a little hyperbolic here? So so for us as observers, I don't think anything shifts because coaches generally do what they think is best. Steve Kerr is not making that move just to do He's not doing it just as a move. He's doing it because he thinks that gives him the best chance to win. Yeah. Draymond claims that he understands that part. Doesn't mean he liked it. Um, but like you said, the the practical part of you as a player is going to say whatever it takes to win, and they won. If they lose, which that's the crux of your question, um, man... <laughs> I would have been interesting to hear Draymond's response in that situation. Um, it would have been fascinating to have heard it. Um, would have been an all-time I, press conference. like And an all-time podcast from Draymond. <laughs> um, you know, I, the, the thing is, like, but 
normally when you look at benchings that are really controversial, it's because it's like, why are they not out there? The DeAndre Ayton thing. Would anybody have been asking the question, why is Draymond not out there with the way he was playing offense? Really? I mean, we no. all understood it. You were you were asking about it days before, or, or the you know the day of the game before the game. Like that's the move that you thought should have been made. So it, I mean, it like you said, it doesn't mean it's not stunning sometimes to watch it. Um, but I do think when you're talking about a defense that's this good, you have to make changes like that. And there are times where Draymond's skill set, particularly if he's playing next to another big that can't space the floor. Uh, you're going to have moments where that, you know, or, or even when you're playing like Iguodala or other guys like that, like you're going to have moments where you're just a little bit cramped. Um, even moments where it's like, I, I feel like sometimes these handoffs and Porter and Clay Thompson, they've got moments where they look cramped, where there's just like not a lot of space or it's like they're doing the defense a favor by how close they're standing to each other. So mm-hmm. I would have understood it for me, you know, just looking at it, it would have been silly to make a big deal out of it if you're Draymond. Um, because, you know, quite frankly, they don't look right all the time when he's out there, but, um, for their sake, for Steve's sake, thank goodness they won the game. Um, and you don't have those questions if Draymond is who he says he is and prioritizes what he says he does. And I imagine that he does, uh, they won the game. So there's no need to worry about it. You got play better. It's not an issue. Um, but you know, like I said, if you can give them a couple of baskets, it's not a question because we know the other stuff he brings to the table. But going back and watching that game, there were a lot of sequences where Draymond really didn't look like he was in the best position defensively on some of the shots that they were allowing. So if he's not a huge, huge plus on that side, he's literally not making any baskets on the offensive side. Yes, he moves the ball on offense, but he also cramps your spacing. So I understood why I wasn't out there. You understood why I wasn't out there. You were saying you thought it would be more effective for them if he wasn't out there. So it wasn't surprising. Um, it would have just been like, can Draymond look in the mirror and realize why he's benched? That's the question that I don't know that we're able to answer because of the way the game played out. They won. If they lose tonight and it's the same sort of thing, uh, and then they lose the series because it's the same sort of thing, then maybe it becomes an off-season question. But I, even that, I don't think that they would change that much because of one series. It would be a very important series. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it would tell teams a little bit more about how to go about defending them. But Boston can do things that a lot of other defenses can't. So much I don't think it's a done. huge – yeah, I don't think it's a huge thing. But it does tell you about you know Draymond's limitations. And, and I think this is a team that has kind of put those to the test fully. All right, I want to look ahead to Game 5 now and get back to the Curry conversation. Much has been made about, including on this podcast, about how the Celtics have defended Curry in the pick-and-rolls. And the pick-and-roll count with Curry has been kind of rising game by game by game because it is just evident that the Warriors can't get anything cooking off ball. There's no... The split actions, they just switch everything, the back cuts, all of the wonderful elements that make the the Warriors the Warriors. Uh, Boston's done a terrific job taking a lot of those actions away, um, and it's, it's left them in the half court in particular to attack with Curry in the pick and roll. Boston has dropped 50% of the time in the pick and roll. 
and curry has, uh, for the most part, roasted the drop. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with Ime Udoka's game plan? Do you agree with Ime Udoka's confidence in his game plan? It is clear he is he is not going to change it. For the record, I I just want to say on the record, I 100% agree with what he's doing. I understand it fully. I don't think it's controversial because of everything I just said about how they're taking everything else away um, and not letting the Warriors be the Warriors. And the Warriors' offense is not, you know, it's very good with Steph on the floor. Overall, it's not very, it's not that great, (laughs) to be honest. Their offensive rating is like 110, I think, in the series. Mm Mm-hmm. What do you think about the coverages that they're deploying against Curry? Should they switch more? Should they blitz? Uh, I can't even. I, I hate asking that question. I just think it's so stupid. But should they blitz? Should they continue to drop as much as they are? Just what do you what do you make of how they're they're trying to contain this guy who's so far been uncontainable? So I am of the opinion that um, for me, the thing that actually scared me most about the way they were defending was when Steph said okay, now you guys are coming up all the way and I'm just going to dribble around you or shake you and get into inside the arc and I'm comfortable enough with the mid-range. Like I, at that point, I would rather entice him into shooting threes, maybe not taking away all his airspace, but most of it. Like I, I think the problem was for the first few games – particularly that was like the the thing we were seeing in the first and the third quarters is like they would do so well in the second quarter of the Celtics. And then it was like, they would almost forget you still have to come up kind of high to stop the guy from shooting. Um, and so he would just go bonkers in the third, which is part of what we've seen throughout the series. Um, you, you want him to feel like he can pull up, but not just go directly around you. Uh, and and so that that to me, maybe, I don't know, maybe there's something to be said for like, let him have the two, don't give him the three. I didn't like him getting so comfortable from inside the arc. Uh, he also is a pretty decent finisher in the series too, if you let him get all the way to the basket. So I'm, I'm probably like the way that the teams have been playing, the way the Celtics have been playing, certainly the way that the Warriors were playing at the beginning of the series where they would have a, an additional defender behind the guy that's actually stopping the ball. And, you know, the way that they've had Draymond playing throughout the series. Maybe you bring somebody up to make sure that um, Steph can't get what he wants from the mid-range. If you bring someone up really high, you've got to have somebody there that's ready to step up to at least contest him so that it's not an easy look for him. Um, like you were saying before about the rear view contest with Derek White, Maybe there's a way to do more of that. You can live with some of the makes that Steph had that were just really, really difficult. So because of that, I don't think I'm willing to change a whole, whole, whole lot about what I'm doing. I I just think some of the mid-range makes, like you said, the floater was like, goodness, who makes this shot? But some of the other ones just looked a little bit too comfortable to me. Um, And I think as long as you can tighten up some of that that he gets when he's going toward the basket – I, I think that you could actually stay the same. What you don't want is Draymond and Wiggins and Clay and for Poole to have a 28-point game all of a sudden. like You don't right. want everybody else going off. You've kept yourself within striking distance of being able to win pretty much all these games. I would say I, I didn't agree with Ime saying that uh, 
at least 3-1. I don't think that they were going to win um, game two. I, I didn't really see that in the making. They were fortunate to get game one with the way they shot. So, you know, they 3-1 would have been nice and that maybe was attainable, but they were never going to sweep the series. Uh, but yeah, like you said, their offense, if their offense had been good enough, they could have won three of these games. And that should give you some comfort in saying we can stick with this. At some point, maybe you just think Steph will be off. And if that's the case, Golden State has their back against the wall um, and having to try to protect the series. So I, I think they can stay with most of what they're doing. I just think they could be a little bit tighter inside the arc a little bit every now and then. Yeah, I think it's, like I said, I think that there are different shades of quote-unquote drop coverage uh, you don't want to have your feet as the big below the three-point line with Steph. If he gets the 25-footer pull-up clean, then he's going to make that like a layup. I think they've done a pretty good job executing what they want to do, and I think that it's the right game plan in the aggregate. And it puts a lot of pressure on whoever's on him, be it Derek White, be it Marcus Smart, be it Tatum or Jalen after an initial switch to either go under and recover, which is really hard, but um, Ime has said that he actually likes how they've executed in those situations or fight over the top and then recover also, um, which is very difficult. Um, but you're not the best defense in the NBA by accident. And I think that their execution on the whole, besides the first quarter, of game one, which, you know, when we say 20 for 40 on pull-up threes, we're including the first quarter of game one when he went absolutely bananas. Um, I think on the whole, that strategy has has held up. And when you look at the issues that Boston has had, I don't think it's defensively. I think it is, if you look at, you know, process versus results, your process is good. The results have not really worked in your favor just because Steph has made so many really tough shots. Clay Thompson has hit some tough, tough shots. I know these are the two greatest shooters who have ever lived, but the way that they've hit these shots is like, if you are the opposing head coach and you have belief in your defense, you don't necessarily think that some of these looks are sustainable. So that's why it's a seven-game series and you're going to ride it out. Um, and I think Ime should. And I don't think it's that controversial. And the only possession that really bothered me watching it was the blitz. I think they've only blitzed Steph three times in the entire series. That was one of them, biggest possession um, of the game for them defensively. They couldn't get a stop. Letting others get involved is a death sentence against the Warriors. Um, and limiting their assist rate, which they've done, which I wrote about on our, our roundtable, on SI.com that everyone can check out, previewing Game 5. I think the assist disparity is very fascinating still. And Golden State led the NBA during the regular season with 66.9% assist rate. Uh, they're at 59.1, I, I believe, off the top of my head in this series. That's significant. It speaks to uh, Boston taking Golden State out of their comfort zone. So I think the defensive coverage is is fine. It's all about execution, which they've done a pretty good job of so far. They just need to keep it up uh, two more times out of three games. 
and get the offense right. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Six PM. Book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com/slash-with-amex. Terms apply. Whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years, have a plan and know the game. Be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble. Set a budget and never gamble with money you can't afford to lose. Take a break and consider teaming up with trusted friends to help you stick to your budget. Remember, if you or a loved one has a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER 24-7 or go to helpmygamblingproblem.org for free confidential services. Um, Speaking of the offense, Jason Tatum. We have not mentioned Jason Tatum yet in this episode, which is very interesting. Um, what, just what do you make of his struggles? Are they, I don't want to say, are they overblown because he's shooting like 24% inside the arc in the series, missing a lot of layups, missing a lot of the tough ISO pull-ups that I'm not going to say he's DeMar DeRozan, but shots that he can typically hit over someone like Jordan Poole and needs to hit over Curry, over Poole. What have you made of Tatum's series so far? And is it more something that he's not doing or something Golden State is doing to kind of make life very difficult for him? It's it's a little bit of both. I think um, what I can respect about him but don't love is that he, he takes the tough shots. When he's playing at his best, he makes those. Um, I mean, we we talk about all the... The stuff he wears, you know, kind of honoring, paying homage to Kobe. He's got a lot of that to his game, which is good, bad. It, it, it's not always a great thing. It's not always a horrible thing. Um, you know, uh, the real thing, I mean, I think it's simple enough. And this is why I would say Golden State has something to do with the way he's playing. Look at the four games so far. Uh, game one for him. Just take out his scoring aspect. Don't even look at that. 13 assists versus two turnovers in game one. Three assists versus four turnovers in game two. Nine assists versus two turnovers in game three. Six assists versus six turnovers in game four. That actually tells you a lot of the story right there. Um, So, I mean, Golden State is doing something to influence the turnovers. Um, They certainly made it a lot more difficult on them and made a point to do that in game two, um, which we talked about after game one of the idea of, man, like you could probably – afford to loosen up on Tatum a little bit to make sure that he doesn't get everybody else going. So they've done that at times, uh, but I think they've struck the balance, Golden State's defense, and kind of finding out how do we make it difficult on him, particularly for mid-range, while also not just letting him have a field day as far as the passing is concerned. So that's the part that's tightened up for him, and that's kind of what he has to figure out. I trust him to figure it out from a scoring standpoint, but if the threes are all he's comfortable with and all he's getting comfortably – um, maybe it means reducing the the mid-range stuff if it's not falling for him. Some of those shots are just so difficult. 
And if you could move the ball around and find somebody else who's open, or if it's an extra couple passes and you've got the time on the shot clock to do it, that could be an answer. Like I, I think part of what Boston needs anyway is a couple more guys to get going. I know that's something we were going to talk about is like who who do you feel like is capable of doing more? Um, I feel like it's a good thing when you're mentioning Grant Williams a lot when he's doing more. I feel like it's a good thing when you're talking about someone like Al Horford being a little bit more involved. You can look uh-huh. at the same sorts of splits for them as far as maybe not you know as clear as the assist totals for Tatum, but you know just how involved was Al Horford? I, I think the games in which he's had single digits in this series, they've lost. The games in which he's had double digits, they've won. Um, Grant Williams, you know, the the best game of the series, they won. The, the other games where he had basically been absent, like they've you know they've been more marginal. So I. I think that there's a lot to be said here, but I think Tatum Tatum just can't turn the ball over the way he's doing, or he can't have an ugly assist turnover ratio. Um, I think they could actually survive him shooting somewhat poorly as long as he's not turning the ball mm-hmm. over too, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I actually, we did a, one of our roundtable questions, wasn't it like who can be the who's like the second most likely to win finals MVP or the second best player in the series. I forget the exact question. Yeah. And I had Tatum as my answer. Um, I think that Jalen Brown has a strong case. Absolutely. The efficiency is not there for Tatum, but when you add just the context of how he's being defended, um, like they're not guarding anyone like they're guarding Tatum. And I'm talking about the Warriors. Like they don't guard Jalen. They guard Jalen basically straight up with, mm-hmm. especially in the fourth quarter. They guarded him straight up with Clay. Clay was incredible on ball, like turning him, c- forcing tough contests. Um, just he was, he, it was like peak Clay Thompson defense, something that it, it's like unimaginable to think about when you think about where he was two, three months ago on the court. Um, so you got to tip your cap there, but like they don't really guard Tatum one-on-one. And when they do, when he gets to the rim, he typically has success finishing, but, um, they load up behind the ball. They blitz him. Um, there's always two on him two at least two sets of eyes on him. And to your, to your point, like he can't drive into the crowd, drive into the help and then make, try to make a pass try to draw the foul, turn it over, live ball. Like, that's when he's at his worst. And I thought he's been overall a pretty good decision maker against the second best defense in the NBA, one of the smartest defenses in the NBA, um, that is executing their game plan to stop him as well as they have. So the shooting, it really isn't, I don't. He's also making forty five percent of his threes. Yeah, which is kind which of a helps big deal. A yeah, it's um, just the two point stuff, really. But the the tough shots. Um, yeah. His threes have generally been pretty open shots, which comes from them moving the ball. Which gets back right. to what we were saying before about the idea of if you don't have it or if you don't have a great look and there's enough time on the clock, move the ball. You might get it back anyway. Yeah, he's also evolved relocating off the ball. He's not Steph mm-hmm. Curry, but he's also not Trey Young. Like he re- relocates when he gives it up, and he just he's really improved that area of his game. So I think the Celtics would love a offensive explosion from Jason Tatum in Game Five and Game Six, and if it goes seven, they'd love for him to 
do what he did in game six of the second round? Absolutely. But you'll take the patience, the good decisions, the trust in the teammates. I think that that's what makes you a superstar, knowing where everybody else is on the floor, elevating everybody else. And in their wins, he's done a really good job of that. So that's why I I picked Tatum to be the, I guess, I don't even know what the question was, like finals, second best finals MVP likelihood. I, I mean, on some matter. level, we've reached a point now where it's like if Boston wins the series, who wins MVP? It's it's not so much like who's the second choice. It's more we know who's going to win it if Golden State wins. I, I, the interesting question, I think, sort of becomes, and without trying to be too cute, and I know Howard wrote the story kind of looking back at the the 2016 finals and the question it's of, not you cute know, it's not it, cute i mean at this point steph has had the most points in every game so far uh and we can very clearly look at everything that he's impacting even when he's not the one that takes the shot steph could realistically win finals mvp it's particularly if the series goes seven and golden state loses i think it's a very fair question tatum has scored enough uh but he he hasn't done it the most efficiently on his team, he's averaging the same amount of points as Brown, uh, so Brown could win it. You know, and if, if you're if the efficiency is a problem for some voters, Brown could win it. But Steph has played the best clearly of anybody on either team, and it's not even really that close. So I, I mean, you know, maybe some people think it's 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 inside baseball to think about that. You know, it, it's probably not that academic of a question at this point. It's more a question of can Steph keep doing this. And if he does, it maybe becomes academic in the sense that Golden State is going to win the series anyway, um, particularly if Tatum doesn't perform better or doesn't take better care of the ball. So it, it, it's all fascinating. It, it's 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 a it's it's a kind of a a grouping of things that we haven't seen before. We haven't seen Steph be this consistently great before in the finals. Um, we generally have not seen Tatum struggle um, efficiency wise for this long in a series. Um, and something's going to have to give, and we'll see what it is. Two predictions from you, and then we'll get out of here. The first, who do you think is going to win finals MVP? Yeah. I mean, again, I, I think Steph at this point uh, is is the clearest bet to do it. Um, I, you know, I, I'm starting to think seriously about the idea that he might win it anyway. Regardless of how the series plays out, that, that you know, if Tatum has a massive game or Brown has a massive game, and then Boston wins the series, a, a massive game six or a massive game seven, I kind of think it'll tilt in that direction. That you know, that that'll kind of overshadow what happened in the first five or six games of the series. But again, if if the easiest answer here is Steph, just because there's not a debate about who would win it within his team, uh, mm-hmm. whereas with Boston, I think you could debate it. You were saying that, for instance, you thought Tatum should kind of has been the the second best player in the series or second most important player in the series. So, you know, since there's that debate, I'll say Steph, even though I'm not sure I would say that I think Golden State won the series. I'm not sure yet about that, but Steph could win it either way. So I'll I'll say him because I think he's a safer answer. Who's the fourth most likely player to win finals MVP? Goodness. That's such a, that's Uh, a toss up. I have, I have no uh, idea what the answer to that question uh, is. Oh, Wiggins? Oh, like is there a fourth most I don't like, know that there's a fourth, man, because Clay has had some duds in the series. Poole has been a dude, like he's just been a dude. Um, Wiggins uh, like 
Wiggins winning finals MVP. Is there a third Celtic we can pick? Like, because I just, yeah, it's not, it's quiet. (laughs) Okay. The one Celtic I'd say, and I think that this is borderline impossible, is Rob Rob Williams. He's been And I say that. I say that because if he were to, he is just the most distinct like um, barometer, for lack of a better word, for Boston. When he's on the floor, their defense is just like, and he's playing well, it's like you can't score against this team. So if he suddenly mm-hmm. looked like the Rob, the pre-surgery Rob Williams for the next, for the rest of this series, miraculously, and Boston's defense clamped down, maybe he had like a bunch of, lob dunks and offensive putbacks and stuff like got a couple mm-hmm. double doubles maybe but no it's it's going to be one of those three Tatum Brown or or Steph I think um, for sure for sure what do you, what do you le- think as far as who it'll be I think it's going to be Tatum is what I think okay I, th- I think All that's right. I don't know if that's the smartest bet but it leads me into my next and last question to you Chris which mm-hmm. is who is winning who is winning game five tonight? Uh, I, I I do think Boston will get this one both just because, I man, it's, you know, as up until this round, we had that stat going with Tatum where every time he shoots worse than this, he shoots at least as well the next game. So there's that part that, you, you know, something has to give there. Um, you keep thinking that the fact that the series has seesawed as far as, you know, whoever wins one game, the other team wins the next. Uh I don't know. Like, I, I, I'm going to pick Boston. I'll probably be wrong just because I feel like I have been a lot lately. Um, but, you know, I, I am really, really, really curious more than anything else to see what does Draymond look like? Like there have been a couple of factors now that should have lit a fire under this dude's ass between the, you know, the, the heckling in Boston and the fact that he was pulled. Um, and the fact that, that yeah, yeah the, the fact that that really seemed to, to bother him. The response has to be, aside from your next podcast episode, play better. Um, I feel like a TNT analyst now, an inside the NBA analyst now, but I mean, it's the truth. And um, he did a lot of Draymond stuff in that game, but you have to expect a little bit more from him just as a scorer at some point to be able to put down better than one out of seven in a game at some point. So we'll see. But that that's really what I'm curious to see. And if that happens, then Golden State will win. But uh I'll pick Boston for tonight, game five. I am also picking Boston. Um, Yeah, I just think if they don't turn the ball over, they're better. And they have not lost coming off a loss. Not lost two games in a row this entire playoff run. I don't think that starts now. Um, So that is who I'm going with. Uh, Can't wait to see what happens. Should be great. I really hope this series... We get more close competitive games and not any more blowouts. That would be terrific. Uh, Game four was a classic. Hopefully game five is the same thing. Um, I think that'll do it for today, Chris. Thank you so much for your your insight, your expertise. Thank you so much to our listeners. Again, I apologize. We didn't have any emails today on the show. There's just so much final stuff to to kind of sift through um but 
you know, send some in about the finals. We're getting, uh, I'm not being critical of our wonderful listeners here. We're getting some, some, some random questions that have nothing to do with the NBA finals right now. And I'm like, we can't read these at this. We're holding them for the off season. <laughs> Would love to read some questions on the air. So please get some in. Um, openfloormail at gmail.com. That's openfloormail at gmail.com. Everybody stay safe. Everybody, please enjoy the rest of the NBA Finals. Whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years, have a plan and know the game. Be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble. Set a budget and never gamble with money you can't afford to lose. Take a break and consider teaming up with trusted friends to help you stick to your budget. Remember, if you or a loved one has a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER 24-7 or go to helpmygamblingproblem.org for free confidential services. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.